1: Your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and today joining me is a duo of other great co-hosts to join me. We have Chad Robinson here in Pittsburgh in the flesh with me. How are you doing, Chad?
2: I'm doing fantastic.
1: And... Brian in Spokane, Washington. Brian Fry, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing well, Russ. How are you?
1: I am great. So do you remember a long time ago, I think it was the Bill and Ted episode, that we were uh, saying that we were going to do backdraft, Brian?
2: Yeah, just like two months ago.
1: Well, we're going to make good on our word.
2: It got backburned.
1: It did. It did. But the happy part of this is there's no better time of the year to release this than now because with September 11th, this is a great movie to honor the heroes who are emergency responders. While this movie's not about 9-11, it's a time of year where it's good to show appreciation for the firefighters and the emergency responders, paramedics, policemen. This episode's going to be dedicated to them, so uh, thanks,
0: guys. Absolutely.
1: Let's go around and ask each other, let's break the ice here a little bit. Today's movie has two brothers. They don't get along very well, but I want to ask you, what are your favorite movie siblings? Chad, why don't you take this one first?
2: Luke and Leia Skywalker.
1: Okay, okay. Solid. Well, yeah, and any, you want to have any supportive reason?
2: They are in Star Wars. <laughs> okay.
0: That's enough.
1: And Brian, who are your favorite on-screen
3: siblings?
0: Sibling cast of This Is Where I Leave You. It's Tina Fey, Jason Bateman, Adam Driver, and Corey Stoll. It's also freaking hilarious. And just that ensemble of four siblings was terrific on screen.
1: Okay, good. I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, I'll have to check that one out. Have you seen that one, uh, Chad?
0: No, but
2: it sounds promising.
0: I'll tell you guys, if you watch it, like, bring it up to your wives and be like, honey, I thought we'd do this tonight. And then they're going to be like, aw, that's really sweet. And then you're going to like it. So it's an awesome, like... Use it if you're in trouble, or <laughs> really any time you want to be like, look at how sweet I am. We're going to watch this feel-good movie. And for me, I probably would
1: normally pick Luke and Leia in Star Wars as well, but I'm going to go ahead and, just for variety's sake, call attention to the movie Bridesmaids. We have a brother-sister combination who are roommates to Kristen Wiig's character. They're played by Matt Lucas and Rebel Wilson, and they are... Really funny, and they inject some nice side humor with uh, some some supportive characters in there, and they still crack me up to this day. I just, I always think of like when you think about roommates, I always think about it's like, you know, we got to be older and we thought, you know, it was kind of silly just a brother and sister living together with a roommate, and, and she's like, yeah, yeah, I understand. Thinking that they're gonna kick the sisters out because she doesn't pay any rent or anything like that, and uh,
3: she goes, that's why we're going to ask
1: you to. Great scene. And there's like a couple of other good scenes in that movie, so bridesmaids for me on that one. Who is your favorite kid actor? Footnote on this one: Chad, you're hard on young actors. Just give us one that you do like.
2: Yeah, I'm infamous for not enjoying children in movies. They they tend to not make anything better. See Iron Man three, but I did really like Drew Barrymore as a child actress. She's she's cute. She's funny. She apparently improved a bunch of her stuff. So we did E.T., if you haven't downloaded that one, check it out. But I really enjoy Drew Barrymore.
1: Good one. I like her in Firestarter, too, as a, as a young child. Yeah. Just don't make her mad. Brian, favorite young actor?
0: Uh, I'm a big fan of Dakota Fanning. It probably started with uh, Denzel Washington and Man on Fire. I'm, of course, she's not a child actor anymore, so really enjoyed her and enjoy her what she's in now. But I mean, you can go back. She was in Allie McNeil. She was in an episode of ER back in the day. Malcolm in the middle. I don't know. She's just one that various things she did as a young actress. And uh, yeah, someone I've enjoyed watching ever since.
1: You know the filmography of Dakota Fanning far better than I do. Uh, so. You, had, you heard it here first, though. Brian can't get enough of the cat in the hat. <laughs> and for me, I'm uh, going to go with Macaulay Culkin. He's about our age. He's a little bit older than us, I think. And I remember when Home Alone came and out. This movie just took me by storm as well as the rest of our generation. And I did go see Richie Rich and My Girl. And, you know, he actually is a good young actor. I, I've seen his movies as I've grown up. And he's he's got some talent as a young actor. Uh, you don't see him in movies now so much. But... That's okay. Credit where credit's due. His performances have held up to me. As previously mentioned, we're going to do Backdraft today. So Backdraft comes out in 1991. It grosses $77.8 million, and it grosses another $74.5 million in the foreign markets, and that's a total gross of $152.4 million. It places in the box office domestically 14th on the year, coming just behind Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, which... I don't like and Brian probably does like.
2: Oh, I loved it. Oh,
0: I love
1: it. Okay. And <laughs> Star Trek 6: The Undiscovered Country. That was bad. The number 1 movie of the year. Wait, isn't Star Trek 5 the one where people lamented? Brian, you're the you're, the, you're a Star Trek uh, guy. Isn't
0: yeah. <laughs> okay. it's four. yeah, it's the Voyage Home. I think it's Star Trek Four. IV okay. uh, was the one that uh, most people are, are pretty poo-poo on. Uh, oddly enough, I loved that one as a kid, just because there were whales and they go back in time and they see the original USS Enterprise. There are parts to it that young me really enjoyed. So Free Willy was a big hit for you? <laughs> I actually did love Free Willy. I did love like Free Willy. I liked, uh, I liked Oceanic movies. <laughs> You're ready for a, a throwback there. Darwin the Dolphin.
1: So the number one movie that year, I'm pretty sure you both like, is Terminator 2 Judgment Day.
2: Yes.
0: Yep.
1: IMDb gives backdraft a 6.7. In the middle of the road there, a little little better. Uh, the critics of Rotten Tomatoes give this movie a 74%, and strikingly, even the audience gives it a 75%. The movie receives three Academy Award nominations for Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing, and Best Visual Effects So Ron Howard will have to wait 10 years or so until A Beautiful Mind to have one of his movies win the Academy Award, at which point uh, A Beautiful Mind will win four Academy Awards, including Best Director. So Ron Howard gets his later. Brian, why don't you take this one first? Have you seen Backdraft before? If so, when was the first time seeing it and how long had it been?
0: I don't have a good timeline on this one either. This is kind of one of those movies that you catch at some point in your life thinking oh Kurt Russell where they start with like escape from New York and then they play escape from LA then backdraft and then tombstone and they just kind of go on a roll but uh, no this is a good movie this was actually probably the first firefighter movie that I ever saw and then this led into me watching ladder 49 and then getting completely hooked on the FX series rescue me so this kind of started a genre for me
1: Interesting. What's it like to return to now? To see... <laughs> Baldwin. Okay. So, Chad, had you seen Backdraft before?
2: I had not, no. I. Unlike Fry, this was not a movie that I was even aware of. This was a whole new experience for me.
1: Had you seen any other firefighter movies before?
2: I have seen Ladder 49, so... I pretty much went in with the expectation this will be Ladder 49.
1: How does it compare to that? Let's let's go that direction.
2: Uh, it doesn't really. Uh, they're different movies.
1: Different movies. Okay. For me, I've mentioned this one in previous podcasts, but this one's a little bit special to me. This was my first R-rated movie, and I saw this coming back from Universal Studios in California. I went to an exhibit there with my parents of Backdraft, which was an exhibit that you First of all, I like it because you didn't have to stand in a massively long line. And then second of all, you stand at like a glass barricade, or I should say just a railing, and there's this room around you that just goes up in fire. It's a great pyrotechnics display. I'm not sure if it's still there or not. If it is, do check it out. This was probably back in 1995, 96 or something, somewhere around there. Uh, And so I came home. I wanted to see it. It was still on my mind because that... That was the thing that stuck out to me. It didn't disappoint. In fact, it exceeded my expectations, and I didn't know what this movie that went with the attraction was. And my mom had seen it before, and so this was my first R-rated movie. She couldn't necessarily remember anything wrong with it. They they double-checked it, and they handed it to me finally, and I got to see this was my first R-rated movie. Not necessarily the most memorable movie for most people, but for me, I'll always remember it for that. And so I was pretty excited to see an R-rated movie, and then I got done with it and I kind of thought, I don't understand the big deal about an R-rated movie. <laughs> I mean, you hear plenty of bad language around the world around you already, so that was not a shocker. It's not so violent that you couldn't conceptualize that either, and also it's it's got a little bit of steam in it, but it's not, so over the top with that either, that it blew my mind. So, Anyway, I was able to process this one thoroughly at age, let's say, 12. Over the years, maybe built it up in my mind, and then I came back to it in college, and I watched it there, and I, it disappointed me. And so I hadn't seen it since then, and now I'm returning to it. I've kind of, the pendulum swings back to the direction, and now it's somewhere in the middle. It's still got great action scenes, and I am excited by it. But I'm also frustrated by the story. But we'll get into that.
2: Well, there's a sequel now. Is there? Yes, Backdraft Draft 2 came out May of this year. Oh, it already came out? Yeah, Billy Baldwin came uh, came back.
1: Oh, well, it got the... I bet that went well. Yeah, it got the attention (laughs) that Billy Baldwin would get then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, as you can tell, I didn't know that. Uh, Quite the film guru I am today then. But I should warn everybody. There are going to be spoilers that lie ahead, so prepare. If you don't want to know what happens in Backdraft, turn this episode off, go watch the movie, and come back and join us. We will return after this.
3: Christopher Walken here to tell you about my favorite podcast, The Retro Movie Roundtable. It's a fun listen if you like movies. I myself have been in movies like Deer Hunter, Dead Zone, and Catch Me If You Can... Uh, If you like this podcast like I do, go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. Wherever you get your podcasts, give them a five-star review and comments on the show. I even gave them a like on Facebook and wrote to John and Russell at RetroMovieRoundTable at Yahoo.com. One of the great joys of my career was hearing the retro movie Round Table talk about my movies. Oh man, you're gonna love these guys. Wow. Okay, and we're back.
1: Chad, uh, you're pretty good at giving a plot summary. Why don't you remind people what happens in Backdraft for those who haven't seen it since 1991 when it came out.
2: Sure thing. Brian McCaffrey, played by Billy Baldwin because his brother Alec didn't want the part, is a 20-something who is broke and drifting through life. He tragically witnessed the death of his firefighter father, who's confusingly played by the same guy that plays his brother in this movie, at a very young age. Broke, he decides to follow in the footsteps of his family and join the Chicago Fire Department. His brother Steven sabotages his easy assignment, gets Brian reassigned to his company. During this time, several suspicious explosions resembling one set by a pyromaniac are investigated by Don Shadow Rimgall. Stephen pushes Brian too hard, and Brian quits the department to join Alderman Swayzak's fire investigation. Brian begins to suspect Steven is setting the fires, but they both come to realize it's their dad's old friend, John Axe Adcox. Axe is setting the blazes to get better funding for the department, which Alderman Swayzak has repeatedly cut. The brothers confront Axe during a large fire, which seems like a really bad time to have a fight. Steven and Axe fight in a scene eerily resembling Anakin and Obi-Wan's fight on Mustafar, and both tragically die, Axe from a fall and Steven on his way to the hospital after being heroically saved by his brother. Brian and Shadow interrupt Swayzak's press conference with the evidence they have against him, and the movie ends with Brian helping a rookie with his turnout gear.
1: Well done, well done, sir. So... For those of you who aren't familiar with the term backdraft, it is a dramatic event caused through a rapid reintroduction of oxygen to combustion into an oxygen-depleted environment in a fire. So, for example, breaking of a window or an opening of a door to an enclosed space, the backdraft present is a serious threat for firefighters.
2: They bring it up at least three times in this movie.
1: It bears repeating. So, yeah. in, in in a way, that, that explosion of fire, and the condition of that in a way is also emblematic of Dennis McCaffrey's character who, you know, he's got an explosive personality.
0: Oh, you mean Stephen? The names in this movie and the names of the actual actors are way too, like, commonplace that it makes it very hard to discuss them.
3: <laughs>
0: it,
2: it was. It, it's particularly difficult because the dad and brother are played by Kurt Russell. Like, oh, okay. Well,
1: that's not totally unheard of. He has a mustache, at least, so it's not bombastic.
2: (laughs) No?
0: He has a mustache. It's fine. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I do wish they'd explain the term flashing. Maybe they did, and I just missed it. But they brought that up numerous times in this movie. It's where you wear
1: a trench coat, and then you go up to somebody, and then you open it up, and you're not wearing any clothes underneath, and you go,
2: hey, ladies, look at that. Woo! And then you close your trench coat up and run away. Yeah, they kept saying the building was going to flash, so I don't think that's how it was going to go. Oh, okay. Like They explained backdraft, and I was grateful for that, except they, they went a little heavy-handed. It's like, yeah, we get why the movie's titled that. You've you've really hammered this nail, but they kept saying the building <laughs> is going to flash, and I figured that would be a relevant plot point, and it just never did.
1: Absolutely. Brian, why don't you give us a rundown of some of those good old American generic names those blue-collar sh- chicago firefighter names
0: kurt russell of course is Stephen mccaffrey but also his dad dennis mccaffrey as chad's brought it up uh we have william baldwin baldwin as brian mccaffrey we have robert de niro as donald as ronald bartell i mean they just really broke the bank coming up they were like all right switch those letters yeah just drop the d okay yeah now that's perfect Rebecca De Mornay as Helen McCaffrey, Jason Gedrick as Tim, Marty Swayzak, and that's pretty much where everything tapers off.
1: Yes, and to refresh your memories on those names, uh, De Niro's character is the detective, Donald Remiel, so he's the one who's investigating all of this.
2: But that that was the one named for an actual guy.
0: Is
1: it?
2: Yes, he was an actual... Investigator or fire investigator?
0: Huh. Did not know that. I'll also, give that I'll give a shout out to Jack McGee, who plays a uh, one of the firemen in the firehouse in this uh, movie. Uh, the reason I'm giving a shout out to Jack McGee, uh, he plays Schmidt, is because he's actually the captain of the firehouse in Rescue Me.
1: Did not know that either. So those are good, good connections there. I've got one here as well. Uh, It's an interesting twist of fate. Brad Pitt lost the role of Brian McCaffrey in backdraft to William Baldwin, who then had to be released from his contract because he was going to play in a small part in Thelma and Louise. And that cast was recast as Brad Pitt. So basically it ended up being a swap.
2: This has to be the only time in history Brad Pitt will ever lose to Billy Baldwin.
0: ...for this and, and some of the background stuff... I didn't feel like anybody really wanted to play Baldwin's character. Right? Like the amount of of shuffling and people who were considered and and that sort of thing. It just seemed like everybody was kind of like, meh, I could leave it. And then in the end, really needs some work.
2: Alec Baldwin, Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, Matt Dillon, Val Kilmer all turned it down. And, And Brad Pitt just lost out. Oh, yeah, and Dennis Quaid. Uh and or no, di- he was he was Steven. Character. Yeah.
1: So there were some people who wanted it and didn't get it, so uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Keanu Reeves screen tested for the role, but they just didn't get the part.
2: I kinda want to see the Keanu Reeves movie.
0: Whoa. Fire. I'd love to see Val Kilmer just to have Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer in another movie together.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Tom Cruise actually recommended I think it was Kurt Russell for this.
1: Kurt Russell is a great cast for this one, I think. We keep we keep knocking William Baldwin, but I actually don't think he does a bad job in the part. Is, oh, that, is that fair?
2: He was fine. Yeah. No, it was fine.
1: Yeah. And William Baldwin and Kurt Russell uh, did their homework. They went to Fight or Fire boot camp. They learned the ropes. They even slept in Chicago firehouses for a month and ordered to prepare for the parts. That would have been cool, working at a fire station, then Kurt Russell and uh, William Baldwin come to hang out with you.
2: That'd be game half of that would be cool
1: gosh man we got to stop <laughs> knocking on it William Baldwin's gonna get upset
0: when he listens to this guys who is excited about this though there's actually I a... would say that we are probably not the first people to jump on the William Baldwin's not a great actor bandwagon well there's
2: a there's a Daniel Baldwin that hosts a sports show up in Syracuse and the only reason I know this is he has a feud with Dan Lebitard right now. <laughs>
1: I mean, he's done a lot of movies, at least. So, I mean, he never... They're not necessarily big movies, but, I mean, he's coming off of Flatliners the year before. So, the Baldwin brand mattered in this early 90s part here. And, yes, it is largely fueled by Alec. And but and then, you know, there's Steven as well and, and William. So, uh, they all look
0: alike. Yeah, they sound alike, too. They do. So, many extras seconds right now to go back in time to the 90s and i'm gonna tell you the number of movies he's been in that i really enjoyed
1: oh, <laughs> oh. okay wow harsh harsh stuff here for for steven baldwin and uh was, except that <laughs> I didn't I actually,
2: take what? down steven oh sorry Billy.
0: harsh stuff for william baldwin my, my Stephen, mistake.
2: you're next in whatever movie you've been in
0: really liked usual suspects
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes and don't forget the classic biodome
0: oh oh biodome solid biodome you know it's funny i I know polly shore lost his mind but he had a couple gems in there kind of like uh, adam sandler with the the duo of and but uh polly shore with biodome and in the army now Like, I I will probably forever love both of those movies. Well, Encino Man's probably his best.
2: Brendan Fraser makes that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'll take the other two over that one, but I hear you. Yeah. That's what we're talking about right now. Okay. And
1: uh, (laughs) as Chad mentioned earlier, Dennis Quaid turned down the role of Bull McCaffrey, or that would be Stephen McCaffrey, so... Uh, Kurt Russell, definitely better than Dennis Quaid in my book. I don't know about you guys. I would not want to see Dennis Quaid taking the tough guy role.
2: I liked Field of Dreams.
1: I like it, but I, do you want to see him... Um, Kurt Russell's, like, he's... T- I mean, he's like a drill sergeant. He's tough on this. Like, I'm having a hard time handing this one over to Dennis Quaid after seeing Kurt Russell do it.
0: I I enjoy Dennis Quaid as uh, Sam Houston in the Alamo. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. Remember so that. He, he, can, he can do it. He, he, he it's, he's, it's possible. Actually... You know, a lot of people, and and I'm one of them. You know, really love Tombstone. Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer was a fantastic. Do a bad job in, uh, of playing Doc Holliday in uh, Wyatt Earp with Kevin Costner. So, in my opinion, there can only be more movies like that, not less.
1: And as I mentioned earlier, we want to dedicate this episode to the hard work of the firefighters and emergency responders, police. Uh, paramedics, but Scott Glenn, uh, the actor, gave the real firefighters credit. He said, they put their lives on the line for us every day. We as actors have it easy compared to those guys. I hope people appreciate them more after that we make this movie. And it does for me. I mean, I never, I wasn't one of those kids that grew up wanting to be a fireman and get on the fire engine. And so to me, even though I saw this a little bit later at age 12, it was my first time when I sat down and started to think, huh, this is extremely dangerous running into a burning building. It's not like Superman, where like you can just go in, put out the fire with like blowing on it, and then like carrying out the crying baby and fly out the window unscathed. It's, uh, this movie does a lot to throw you into it. That's, I'd say that's the backbone of what why this movie is cool.
2: And they still get recruitment today. There are a lot of people that are showing up for to be firemen, firewomen, and saying, hey, backdraft inspired me when I was young so it's cool that it does that
1: it is and tipping in the hat to some real firefighters we're going to see some of the people who are in the movie and have some somewhat decent roles there are actual chicago firefighters as well so cedric young who plays grendel kevin casey nightingale and richard lexi uh, who plays washington they're all former chicago firefighters themselves and uh, jack mcgee was a firefighter as well William Baldwin said that his relationship with Kurt Russell on screen was better than it had been as his real brother.
0: Friends of each other. Like, do you think the Baldwin household just gets together and...
1: I don't know, but I know Alec Baldwin, despite some of his roles... Like, I, I want to lightjack, uh, I think, Donaghy from 30 Rock, but I think Alec Baldwin's notoriously not that nice of a dude, so...
2: What was it? Family Guy. Drink up, Steven. You're the weakest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I,
1: I, I don't, I'm with you, Brian. I'm, I'm guessing. I sense that these guys don't get along that well. I don't. I can't really even speak to William or Stephen that much because I just don't know them that well. But I'm just gonna bet that Alec Baldwin doesn't have an easy time getting along with anybody. It's my guess.
0: I mean, I bet. But he was in Dracula 2000. Was so it fourth Baldwin? Yeah, there's, yeah.
2: There's Daniel Baldwin. He's the one that hosts the Syracuse <laughs> the... radio show.
0: Wow, oh, I insane. didn't I didn't know that was actually him. Yeah, I did not yeah, know. Yeah,
2: he, he brings on his brothers all the time, and uh, and his I think there's at least one sister, but there might be two.
1: Yeah, I didn't know about him at all.
0: So
2: yeah, yeah. He's the one picking a fight with Dan Levitard.
0: Okay. The only, the only movie, no, that's not true. The the two movies, uh, and it wasn't Dracula 2000, it was vampires. Okay. So this one
1: also comes from the heart of a firefighter as well. Uh, the screenwriter Gregory Wyden was a firefighter for three years, and this film is based on the death of an actual friend uh, from an actual backdraft. So what do we think about the story written by former firefighter Gregory Wyden? Brian?
0: You have a, a you're you're kind of confined. Like your 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 antagonist is basically going to be one thing, and that's going to be the fire. I understand that Glenn's part in this being the one who's setting all this stuff up, but make a movie like this or a TV show redundant based on that overarching piece. Enjoyed about this is. Each fire is inherently the same, but very, very different. And I thought it really mixed up the danger with the camaraderie and, and that piece. And, and that's one thing that I've seen across the board in every fire-related anything I've watched.
1: Good points there. What do you think about the story, Chad?
2: Yeah, I, I didn't know that part that it was written for someone that he knew uh, that had this tragic event happen to him, So that makes it far more personal, far more touching. Uh, I I enjoyed it. Uh, like Brian said, the, the fire really, they describe it as alive. I know some firefighters have come back and said, hey, it's not really a living thing. We don't think of it that way. But uh, it was interesting hearing that perspective. And like Brian said, it, it was different. It was unique every single time you encountered it.
1: Yes, he is also the creator of the Highlander, as well as the Prophecy.
0: I love that movie.
1: Yeah, I think this one, I don't want to be too hard on him, but and obviously he's a former fireman himself. So, But I think this plot isn't sure what it wants to be. We have a mystery here with, with a detective, and he's tracking down an arsonist, but then... The central part of the story is the relationship between the brothers, and then also there's the arsonist himself. And I can't say that it all goes together that well. The arson plot line kind of comes into this relatively late in the movie. That's a challenge to then incorporate that. I feel like uh, we don't get William Baldwin in the fold of the investigation nearly soon enough. It feels like it's an appendage of the second act because they focus so much on these brothers and their relationship. And I know that's the part of the movie that has the human dimension to it, but I think I would find it a lot more interesting to be with De Niro and Baldwin a little more in this. Is that a fair statement? I'm going to throw that to you, Brian.
0: One of my biggest gripes on a lot of movies is where they try to add... That every movie needs And I don't think that that's true I think there are movies that you can have Or 12 You don't need to have And touch on them You can actually just have A really compelling movie about A group of dedicated firefighters Who two of them have an issue with one another And one of them quits Goes to work for Basically an an inspector of fire And then go on like you don't have to have the romance angle you don't have to have the family skirmish angle across as every scene has to have some extra plot device that detracts from the overall point of this guy trying to fire department better so
1: you're kind of coming at it from a different way of saying it but i think maybe is it fair to say simplify this story and maybe just do less and focus on, simplify it, I should say, and focus on what's at the core.
0: Sure. No, I totally agree with that.
1: Okay. I am saying that as well, and I, I agree. I think the issues of the ex-wife feel like an appendage. The failed romance between Baldwin's character and Jennifer Jason Lee's character, I feel like it's a little bit forced in there as well, and it serves a purpose in the plot, but I feel like it gets too much time spent on it. Chad, we're both saying that this movie's maybe stretching in different directions. Is that a fair statement? Where do you where do you stand on the story as how it functions?
2: Yeah, I, I don't want to give too much away on one of my superlatives, but uh, I definitely get where you're going and Brian's point as well. the The romance seems contrived. One of the odd things to me was they did a montage of the sex scene with Jen. But it was spliced in with Stephen fighting fires. And I'm like, this is very strange to me. Uh, and it kept cutting back and forth between them rolling around in bed and <laughs> Stephen's out there fighting a the fire. I'm like, we, we don't need But you this. need a montage. Montage! <laughs> it's like, we, we just don't need this. I kind of felt like the Hallelujah Chorus should have been playing during this. Like, <laughs> kind of Watchmen asked, What what is going on? I
1: was thinking we needed to cue Kings of Leon's, this sex is on fire.
0: Oh. <laughs> that, that hadn't happened yet. <laughs> and shouldn't happen. Time machine, make it happen.
2: Yeah.
1: Ron Howard, hook us up with that time machine.
2: Where was Billy Joel? It's some
1: sort of hot tub time machine. That's true. We could have had we didn't start the fire in there.
2: Things that are heavy handed. That's,
1: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. John, little on the nose.
2: Yeah, it just can't be playing when Axe is on screen.
3: Yeah. We started the
2: fire. Yeah, he's just that was such a strange thing too. He's like, Oh yeah, I'm trying to get uh money for our department. It's like you killed three dudes. You you can't do that.
0: <laughs> to sum up what we just talked about um, in the in the show rescue me all of these plot points at some point in time I think are covered but we're talking about a show that lasted I want to say six or seven seasons
1: so it had time to yeah it had time to cook use all of that
0: and you could totally tell that that you know backdraft they pulled some stuff from that clearly there was actors that were in the same things because they, they fit that role in people's heads Uh, movie. It's just, I don't like movies that cram.
1: Really, really good point. I think of Ron Howard as usually being a little more disciplined, but he's all over the place with his career. Admittedly, he does a very chaotic movie prior to this, and I think it pays huge dividends. I don't know if either one of you have seen Parenthood. Yeah. Yeah, starring Steve Martin. That movie has several different plot lines or different aspects of the family, and a lot's going on. And I somehow think that it works there. It's as if to say family life's messy. And there's these different aspects of it. And it all comes together and it tells all these various stories. And not necessarily an anthology, but they're not necessarily all contributing towards one similar plot line. And that's literally the movie he does before here. And I just think that whereas he had success, that movie was critically praised. I can see where this came after that. I can see where this is along that line of, like, I can do all this stuff at one time. And Ron Howard maybe felt like he could do everything at once. Luckily, it's not that much longer before he goes on to do Apollo 13, and I think he gets back on the right track.
3: <laughs> you can't
2: you can't really shoehorn romance or anything. In...
1: That's just a good movie. I don't know. What do you think about—let's talk about Ron Howard as a director. Brian?
0: Say hardcore against Ron Howard. I think he's definitely one of the top ten directors of our generation. Or so maybe our generation isn't the right thing. But, you know, the movies that he is known for, I feel like definitely came out in our generation.
1: You know, he's done a lot of good ones. He's had a couple of missteps, but generally his missteps aren't that bad. Is that a fair statement? Like, he doesn't really bottom out too hard.
0: Sure. Outside of American what I've seen. Well,
1: that's Lucas. So Ron Howard, some of my favorite hits of his include Night Shift, which is Michael Keaton's first movie, a really funny movie where they turn a morgue into a prostitution ring. Splash, the mermaid movie. Parenthood, as we mentioned, Apollo 13's really good. Mel Gibson's uh, Ransom, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which the, the real one with Jim Carrey, which I, I like that movie quite a bit. Uh, Beautiful Mind is really, that's that's the best one for me on that one. Cinderella Man was Really great Da Vinci Code. Uh, some people don't like Angels and Demons, the follow up. I had a fun, fine enough time with it. And I think Rush uh, with uh, Chris Hemsworth was yeah. underrated. And I quite liked it, even though there was some controversy over it at the time. But I like Solo, a Star Wars story, quite a bit.
0: Just FYI.
1: He directed it or he was in it? He was in it. I'm sorry. I was only talking about him as a director. Sorry. Yes.
3: Oh.
0: Yeah, he was, he was there.
1: No, you're right. You're right. I, I was—I was on the director line only, and you're right. Ron Howard as an actor certainly was. Oh, no worries. Graffiti. Sorry, we were having parallel conversations.
2: Yeah, but Sea Biscuit as well It's another another one I really
0: enjoyed that he
2: directed.
1: Oh, thanks. Good one. Missed that. And Willow.
0: That I'm really looking forward to. It's called Hillbilly Elegy. It's based on a sociology book, Death of Coal Country. And the book is set in uh, Southern Ohio, but uh, you know it really it really hits home. But the author does kind of a, a good whimsical, you know, lighthearted analysis on how that's declining and, and what that looks like. And I, I thought it was a really important book to be written. And I'm glad that they're doing a a film for it.
2: Yeah.
1: So Ron Howard, in March of 2018, he announced that Universal uh, that he had uh, tapped Spanish director Gonzalo Lopez. Galileo, to direct the sequel with William Baldwin uh, to reprieve his role. And it's a different kind of action movie, he said. It teaches you something real and it allows you to learn something. I don't know if you see Ron Howard in any interviews, but he seems like somebody who's just absolutely passionate about it in a way that somebody who's been doing it for this long that you don't always expect. I really enjoy hearing him talk about the field of movie direction. There's a sense of joy in him when he speaks and i always like to hear ron howard interviewed
2: yeah i mean he's been in some of the most iconic tv shows with the andy griffith show happy days it's it's fun to hear him talk about even the people that he's encountered in the cast he's worked with so he's just had a fascinating career
1: yeah yeah and i think that early acting career helps groom him to be the director that he goes on to be
0: yeah Stop me if I'm completely off base on this, but if they ever made a movie about Ron Howard, how are they not gonna get Joss Whedon to play Ron Howard? I can't picture what Josh Whedon looks like. Do do a, do a side by side sometimes. It's not redheaded for starters. I I just uh, feel like that needs to happen, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is mean to Ron Howard, but Oh, I'm such a bigger fan of Josh Whedon. I think it's like a No, I just meant
1: I meant I meant appearance wise, like like Joss Whedon looks like he's fatter, and even though he's younger, like I don't, I don't, know. Like, I don't know.
0: Well, I wasn't trying to piss off the Joss Whedon gods by calling him fat, but I mean, you know, he could lose a little weight.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I do like Joss Whedon as a director, so I don't. I'm just, I'm just saying he's behind the camera for a reason. I feel like
0: we've, we've, we've frazzled Russell slightly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Anyway, so Ron Howard actually goes on to say, though, and talking about this, and again, I mentioned his interviews that I like, he talks about and says, this is the most difficult movie that I've ever done up to that point. And I would imagine coordinating all of these pyrotechnic scenes would take a lot because if you look at his filmography, he doesn't have a lot of effects,
0: intense parts up to this point.
2: Yeah, Night Shift didn't require too much.
1: No.
0: Sorry, I I, I had to find a picture just to, to, to prove that... Sweden's not fat. Or that fat. (laughs) Sorry. On a terrible tangent. On a terrible, terrible tangent.
1: Yeah, I gotta get get back on the rails. Uh, To draw audiences into the intensity of a real-life fire, cameraman was outfitted in a fireproof suit and wandered through flames with a handheld camera. That's pretty cool.
2: I really hope he got paid more than the average rate.
1: I don't know how that works 100% because I'm assuming they're using film at this point in time. I wonder what measures, they didn't specifically go into this, but I'm wondering what measures they would have had to have taken for the camera because film is obviously highly
2: combustible. So you're far more concerned with the film and the camera. I'm more concerned with the guy that's got to walk through it.
1: No, but I'm wondering how you turn a, a, the the kind of cameras that you use uh, in Hollywood are expensive devices and so yes, h- how you take a regular camera not designed to go into a fire and basically make it into a protected box that's heat proof enough to be able to do all that just from a product design standpoint I'm, I'm actually genuinely a little bit curious about the how they would have done that.
0: I mean I'm guessing it's the same way they do like the, the Panasonic Thinkbooks for police officers the ones that are made out of like metal. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the yeah, Tough Bucks and stuff like that. I
2: mean, oh, yeah, the tough you can ones. do
0: anything if you're willing to pay for it.
2: Yeah, Christopher Nolan for uh, the Batman movie here in Pittsburgh, they broke the IMAX camera. And he, he told us how many hundreds of thousands of dollars that was. And he's just like, there are two of these in the world, so uh, give us a second.
1: (laughs) So another thing that Ron Howard was mentioning, that he wanted to make the movie about power and conflict between brothers. He had actually dealt with similar themes in Splash as well as Parenthood prior to this. This movie at its core, I think, is at its best when it's the conflict between the two brothers. Well, obviously the action also, the firefighting, but the part of the story that does work well is the conflict between the brothers. All this other stuff didn't really come together for me as much, but at least it had that going for it because that was continuous from beginning to end. Part Is that the storyline that you would most want to focus on, Brian?
0: Yeah, I think that's accurate.
1: I, I also want to give this movie credit. It's a pretty movie, particularly during the firefighting. They're highly coordinated to be able to... I really love the first scene where it's a failed mission for William Baldwin as he goes into the fire there, but it shows you the sense of being disoriented and what it would be like. To just surrounded by all of this fire. I mean, you obviously can't feel the heat, but it is overwhelming. It's an intimidating thing to imagine being in this warehouse that's just shooting up in fire and how fast the flames can spread.
2: Yeah, and for movie reasons, there's obviously not smoke, so the audience can see, but in real life, one of the criticisms of this movie is there's smoke everywhere. You can't see, you've got a lot of heavy equipment on, so the sounds, the the heat, the smoke, just everything, it's sensory overload.
1: Oh, that's a good point because there's not an abundance of black smoke. You're right. Yeah. The the your vision would be more obscured than this.
2: Yeah, I found it interesting they because fire doesn't crawl, but uh to do some of the effects they they did to make it look like it was crawling, they actually shot it upside down. So those shots where the fire is kind of crawling on the floor is actually the ceiling. So they did a lot of technical work just to to make these cool fire effects. And I appreciated that it wasn't some cheesy CGI fest. It really could have gone that way. I mean, 1991, you're not that heavy into it, but the fact that they were lighting things on fire and they even said, hey, it's kind of tough to do two takes of this stuff. We've got to get it right. I really appreciated that.
1: Absolutely. And I want to also call out, I like the Chicago aesthetic personally. Maybe it's just me being an architect. Maybe it's me having traveled there I love the city of Chicago, so I love setting a movie in Chicago, and obviously with the history of the Great Fire in Chicago, I can't think of a single place I'd rather want to set this movie. Brian, do you like where they shot this
0: movie? Yeah, is a great place to do a firefighting movie just because of the uh, the style of the buildings they have there, the expanse of the city. It allows for you know broad sweeping shots of Great Lakes, that sort of thing. I actually am a huge fan of Chicago's location for just about anything.
1: Yeah, and the studio work, to be clear, like the firework is done largely in Los Angeles, but there are locations, various locations around Chicago, I don't have to go into all of them, that this movie is shot, but the one that I really want to call attention to is the final scene where there's a huge parade of over 2,000 firefighters, and many of them were real firefighters, and Central Chicago going down Michigan Avenue uh, it's a very sobering finish to this movie. It kind of took me by surprise. We lost Kurt Russell's character in the end. This movie shows you how... I, I normally don't like losing a main character like that in a movie, but in a way, it shows you how real and how dangerous this is. And because of this is an ode to firemen, it, in a way, it seems appropriate to me. And I actually like it and respect it more for doing and that's a powerful scene one thing i did want to notice though is i don't think that the 1971 part of the movie was 70s to the max obviously we had a mustache put on kurt russell to to be 70s so he's got a 70s stash but i don't know that the environment around him was very driven and focused on his face as a boy but i felt like the cars and the buildings and stuff around there i felt like that even though it's a small scene in the beginning I didn't feel immersed in an earlier time period at that point.
0: They had
2: people dressed as hippies giving peace signs, though. So that lets you know it was in the 70s. That,
0: that's fair. That's all you really need. Everyone was
2: <laughs> very nice. Like, I live right by a fire station. And so I see the fire engines quite a bit. No one's lining the streets just casually waving to the firefighters. Like, yay! Kind of like uh, old times when people used to go down to the docks and wave at uh, cruise ships that were leaving. I think John Mulaney does a sketch, like how bored were they that they're just like, "We're gonna wave a lot. To- <laughs> we we gotta go downstairs. down on Saturday, and we're gonna
1: wave our handkerchiefs."
2: To the boat. Do we know anybody on the boat? No. <laughs> <laughs> just like the seventies, all these hippies are taking time out from their peace sit-ins or whatever else to wave at fire trucks.
1: I feel like I've seen a number of maybe more so policemen who friendly, like you know, as they're on their patrol going around town or whatever, like give a friendly wave if. You know, that happens.
2: You feel like people in this day and age are waving to the police? If they wave to you, you're going to wave back. Oh, these people were initiating it. Oh,
0: well, okay. I'm going to cop to this, and I probably shouldn't, but when Jess and I were up in Vancouver, uh, we were walking around uh, downtown, and we ended up over uh, where they dock cruise ships, and one was pulling out, and everybody's waving, and I wave back, so... That happened. Just I'm I'm just saying, like it happened Like, no, we didn't go down <laughs> there just to do that. But every now and then, there's some jackass on vacation who says, "Yeah, all right, I'll wait back at you." <laughs> well, yeah, I was trying to fit in with the, the the Canadians.
1: Well, you were in Vancouver. Everybody's more polite in Vancouver. Everybody waves at everybody. Sorry, I didn't wave. I really hope that you have a great day.
2: I know we were talking about the Chicago location, but even pre-9/11. I always associate my firefighters with New York, so for me, I, I kind of wish this movie were set in New York. I need that thick New York accent. Get someone like Steve Buscemi, who was actually a firefighter; he was a volunteer firefighter. That would have been fun. But just having those thick New Yorker accents and just their special slang, that would have that would have improved things for me. You were even getting a more chicago accent through this i i didn't feel like we had that that heavy
1: we did need a little bit of chicago accent yeah yeah give Give me some polish guy or whatever yeah there's a couple of names that sound very chicago in there but
0: you're right i'm I'm telling you chad you need to watch rescue me like that's that's a hundred percent of what you get yes (laughs) One thing I'm curious about,
1: and I'd I'd love to ask a real firefighter, is it drove me nuts how often people took their masks off. And then uh, the also none of the helmets seem to have chin straps. These loose uh, fire helmets just seem like they would just pop off.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, how else was his dad's helmet going to conveniently conveniently fall to him when he died?
1: (laughs) I mean, construction caps, in fairness, have like a little crank on there to make them stay on your head. But, again, firefighters, you're doing a lot of, you know, there's hoses flying around, high-powered water, stuff flying. I'm going to guess you have a chin strap.
2: Well, Stephen was driving me nuts because he was doing it without a mask or anything all the time. And the people behind him were wearing masks most of the time. And they do call it out later. I'd written it down like, why is he not doing this? Is it just because he's famous and he has a clause? Kurt Russell's face must be shown. But uh, they said something like, oh, there goes Steven He never wears his mask. I'm like, this is dumb. You're going to die.
1: I think there's ways of personalizing their equipment a little bit. I'm not saying go full-blown Blackhawk Down because everybody's covered in tan dust and goggles, and I can't tell who anybody is in Blackhawk Down. They write their names on their helmets on the front. That helps. But I feel like you could personalize things a little bit. Uh, It's one of those things.
0: Or it's... So which way is it, though? I mean, it's either you can't tell every anybody is. I mean, these people are being paid for their, you know, visages for this movie. So either they're not doing it by the book, and they have to call it out or not call it out, or you can't tell who they are. So you can't have it both ways.
1: And that's my point, Brian. I guess at the end, I think, as directors do time and time again, they tell Captain America to take his helmet off. They tell the firefighters in the movie to take their helmet off. They, they have the lead actor take his, you know army gas mask off even though there's mustard gas all over the field or whatever. I think this is just one of those things that we have to suspend our disbelief well enough on because I do think that it is disorienting a little bit. And obviously the most emotion that you can convey as an actor is definitely going to come from your eyes and your face.
2: One of the last scenes with with Axe, the expression that Glenn was able to convey in his eyes of just this conflict, the, the doubt, the sadness about what he'd done I don't think would have been the same with a mask, but they did kind of personalize a few. Like he had axe across his back and there was bull across Stevens' back. So you kind of had those markers, but yeah, I, I, I get it. It's hard to have the emotion in the eyes if they're just covered in a mask.
1: Right. And I think at the same time, it would be nice to have a first person mask shot so that it, makes you feel like you're in the mask.
0: i tell you what, this just gave me an idea. Can I go a different direction with you? If, uh, if you are going to be true to how it actually looks, you could save a ton of money on your actors by just going with some guys who aren't as good and just throw a mask on them. True. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, there are probably a lot of these are price stuntmen doing this stuff because again, as Chad mentioned, this is pyrotechnics at its finest and they're suiting people up, walking cameras through a room full of fire. So it is controlled, though. They do know what they're doing, and they know where the fire is going to be to some degree. But uh, fire can go wrong, as Michael Jackson will tell you.
2: Yeah. Well, they they thought they lost Kurt Russell. He was supposed to emerge from the building, and then four minutes later, they couldn't find him. So one of the production staff actually ran in, no mask, didn't learn anything from what we were just talking <laughs> about, ran into the fire looking for Kurt Russell, who'd gone out the back exit, and he didn't know. He Oh, So this production staff member was like, yeah, that was really dumb. That could have cost me my life. So there was serious risk here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. To the point of like these LA studios that they were building, a lot of the material and it's pre-burned and they install it in such a way and they have layers that they can pull off or cut the shot of here's the fresh stuff and then you go cut back and then there's the pre-burned stuff. So it's, it is really clever. Again, going back to that Universal Studios exhibit when you really look at pyrotechnics, this movie probably has the, the best range of pyrotechnics in it. It might not be my top explosion of, move, of my movie watching career, but it is overall start to finish and the breadth of what, all that they do with real effects. Uh, it, to me, I don't know about you guys, this, this is as good as fire pyrotechnics get. For
2: the time. Yeah, they, they also set fire to buildings that were scheduled to be demolished. There were buildings that it was just like if this goes poorly. Yeah.
0: No biggie.
1: <laughs> yeah, Brian, you said you say for the time is what has surpassed it for you because I I I'll be honest with you even though this movie's ninety one I'm not thinking of pyrotechnics specifically
0: that surpasses. Oh, put me on the spot uh, for coming up with something, but um, <laughs> I always really liked what they did in the the Bad Boys movies. Thought they did a good job on those. Uh, Michael Bay gets a lot of crap for his explosions, but there's actually a lot of art and style into how he does it. Uh, It's almost become a thumbprint at this point. So I think like anything, it it gets better with time. There's only uh, technological innovation. I'm sure that I, I don't have one like in a holster at my hip right now, but I'm sure there's a movie out there that's phenomenally better 20 years later.
1: I guess I'm going with Chad's point of, if you did a lot of these scenes today, that would probably have a lot of CGI fire. I guess I just have such a high regard for practical effects. I get that, yeah. Anyway, Kurt Russell, Kevin Casey, Scott Glenn, William Baldwin, all did a lot of their own stunts, kind of following on what Chad had said there. And uh, stunt coordinator Walter Scott was so impressed with their performances that he credited them as stunt performers in the credits as well. So I didn't sit there and notice that, but it's an interesting thing I read and pointed out. Double pay. (laughs) Yeah, good point. The cast came face-to-face with 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit or 649 degrees Celsius fireballs on the set. So that's that's a hot set. One fire on the movie got so hot that it actually caused structural damage in the building that they were in. Luckily, it was an old warehouse and was already scheduled for demolition. Good thing that they picked a place that was going to be demolished.
2: Yeah, it always helps to burn down things that will be torn down anyways.
1: Let's really do it. Yeah, we saw that in uh, Demolition Man. They did some demolition. Yeah. I remember in that one they had a, a, a prize that you could blow up the building. MTV had a, like you could be the person to detonate, oh. to detonate the building in the movie. So uh, there was no prize here to
0: start the fire. What do you think about the soundtrack, Brian? I mean, I'm kind of with you on that time frame of music. <laughs> so without like poo-pooing on it too much, uh, not a fan.
2: Okay, and Chad? I actually liked it. Uh, I I liked that it wasn't... There weren't any real ham-fisted tunes that I I caught on. I liked that when they're in the car, there's just some light-hearted tunes like War, What Is It Good For? playing on the radio. That was kind of fun. The sweeping music in the background. That actually goes on to be reused for Iron Chef in Japan, 1993. So they're using the score from this movie the the sweeping soundtrack
0: to cook food are we talking about the actual score or the soundtrack because Hans Zimmer I'm a huge fan of Hans Zimmer like his both his score for the movie was great it's the the individual songs that they use for various scenes that aren't the score that I'm talking about
2: that's fair I mean that's the, I'm with you the The pop music isn't for everyone, but I I enjoyed it as just kind of a throwback of, hey, this is what they would be listening to on the radio. This makes sense. I kind of appreciated that. Yeah, I see
1: both points. I felt, from a mood standpoint, you do want to switch what's in action and then the intense, dramatic moments with what's on the radio and stuff like that. So I I think in the end, I think you've changed my mind on that, Chad. I I was definitely in Brian's camp of like, just stick with score was my note, like all score, but... I think there's a tone difference by doing that, and I'm I'm easing up on that now. I'm, I'm if you've brought me around to that, I'm gonna I'm gonna eliminate that as a criticism. Now. Apparently,
0: these were the the songs Russell was looking for. <laughs> that was the worst like laugh, dead stop like
1: <laughs> like, I feel like awkward I silence stuff. after a laugh. It's time for look for this, Brian.
0: What do you have for us in true form to my usual. My look for this is something I brought up in my casting. I love the fact that they have a member of the Rescue Me T V show was actually in this. It's likely why he was cast for that show. I really can't emphasize enough how much I enjoyed that show and I feel like I would almost retrospectively give this movie a better grade based on what it did for that show.
1: That's a great Shout out. Chad, look for this.
2: Two of the three arson victims, Donald Cosgrove and Alan Seagrave, uh, their names were significant. Cosgrove was Robert De Niro's technical advisor, and Seagrave is the name of a fire apparatus manufacturer.
1: Interesting. Good good catches there. I'm going to go with, there's a scene where John Adcox, who's played by Scott Glenn, Breaks out the windows of a Mercedes Benz that's blocking a fire hydrant in order to snake his hose through the car and access the fire hydrant. Which I I really like that That, scene. That was cathartic. Yes, this is actually a real life instance uh, from a Boston fire department, and and uh, was forced where they were forced to break the windows out of a BMW blocking a fire hydrant so that they could respond to a fire alarm across the street. So uh, this can happen.
2: Don't park in front of a hydrant. Don't do it. And I love that they chose it was a BMW. I love that.
1: Uh, well, I mean, you, it doesn't matter what the car is, I guess. You know, I mean, they're not going you know, to go up and go, guys, this car is too nice. Let's just watch that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I, it's, I'm wondering if it's happened to less eventful cars that uh, oh. don't, don't make these reports just like, hey, knock out the windows out of that Honda Civic.
2: Yeah, there's, there's... Nobody writes about that. There's a ton of Toyota Corollas that are getting their windows knocked out. It's just too common of a color. Huh. Yeah, I'd agree yeah. with
1: that. I think it's time for the best time. The awards, Chad. Brian, you ready to hand out some awards?
0: Absolutely.
2: Start.
1: MVP.
0: Brian. Uh, my MVP for this is Kurt Russell. There are times in the movie where I feel like there's a hint of overact to it. But if you look at kind of the edge that his character walks in the movie, it makes sense. And it took me watching other fire-related shows or movies to understand like, that mentality, because I think there are about four or five different personality traits that, that come out in Firemen. They kind of comically, uh, Woody Harrelson kind of comically does the different types of detectives in the first season of True Detective. I think there's probably similar types in Firefighting. And Kurt Russell is just one of those people that like, when you're that close to the edge and you're trying not to go over it, he did a good job of emphasizing that in his pseudo insanity in this movie. Great points.
2: He gets a point for convincingly uttering
0: the line, well, I'm not
2: your father, but he literally <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know why they did that. Like that, like seriously, like if there's anything you can knock about this movie, like why on earth would you pull a, Like a cameraman who's over the age of 50 and be like, yep, you're it. Like, they did not (laughs) need to do that. (laughs) Get Uh, the director or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know
1: why. Chad, MVP.
2: My MVP is going to go to The Fire. Uh, Without Fire, there can't be any backdraft. I love that a lot of it wasn't CGI. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee said it best. She said, I wish I was the fire. It has the best part in this movie. <laughs> fire! 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 Yes! <laughs> fire! Yeah, it, it, was, it was great. It was unique, like Brian pointed out. I really enjoyed it. The- Fun!
1: And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double Brian's pick here and go with Kurt Russell. In a movie with Robert De Niro, Kurt Russell still owns every part of this movie. And I would attribute his performance to being like a soldier. Ron Howard talked about how he wanted this to feel like combat against this force. Of, that is the fire uh, and I think Kurt Russell absolutely nails it and he's intense and he's a dysfunctional mess and he uh, he's got his life priorities all out of whack but in a way that fierceness that makes him an animal makes him able to go out and fight fires at a, you know like with uh, such ferocity so uh, I like the character that he does and he fits by far the best
2: yeah to To paraphrase what he said with that combat mentality, it was, this isn't selling log cabins. You screw up here, you're dead.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So best supporting actor, Brian. Aren't you glad you get to go second, by the way? You always have to go last and everybody takes your stuff. That's why I gave it to you.
0: Oh, no, I'm I'm down. My uh, best supporting is Scott Glenn. Uh, He's a great bad guy. I think that, and I use bad almost in quotes with this, like, I think that you can have a character like Kurt Russell where he's dancing close to the edge, and then show the guy who's gone over it. And uh, he's just a really entertaining actor. Uh, I usually enjoy everything he's in.
2: Yeah, his his speech to welcome the rookies was pretty great.
0: It was. It, it was almost going to be my uh, my best quote, but it's just too long.
1: I'm gonna go with Donald. Oh, sorry. No, uh,
2: Chad. Who is your?
1: I know Russell's. I know Russell's.
0: I'm glad you gave it to me because I'm gonna Russells. steal
2: that. I'm going to steal it. It's it's Donald Sutherland, who actually comes back for Backdraft 2. Does he really? But uh, he plays, yeah, Uh, he plays Ronald. And Ronald's just a fascinating character. I I love him because he kind of winds up being Hannibal Lecter. He's this villain who is advising the heroes how to to catch whoever's setting these arsons. And his inflections, his facial tics, uh, he just chews up every scene he's in.
1: I want to give this to De Niro. And I even kind of want to give this to Scott Glenn because they're both awesome, but I have to go Donald Sutherland. He's he's a show stealer when he gets on. His facial expressions in particular really add to the, I'm a madman who just wants to burn everything. And,
2: yeah, you know. that that very easy trial, like, are you going to do it again? No. And he, he He almost sounds normal until De Niro starts questioning him. And he just starts giggling like, oh, I set old women on fire. I set children on fire. And he just starts laughing. It's like, oh, the crazy came out again. It was
0: awesome. But, yeah. Oh, it was awesome.
2: But that parole board, you know, who's lobbing those softballs? Like, do you regret what you did? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Are you going to do it again? No. <laughs> They're just like, we recommend parole. <laughs> Thank goodness Robert De Niro was there and took an interest in this guy Hidden Jim Chad I mentioned it earlier but Donald Rimgall, not the character but the actual person who was a an arson investigator and who Robert de Niro's character is named after he's actually one of the random party guys in the background so oh, really? shout out to him for being an inspiration, likely being an advisor and also getting in the movie
1: I loved how this movie pays homage to all the people who are you know like putting real firefighters in this movie and doing stuff like that yeah that's just cool it's just a feel good thing to do when a movie about this kind of hero for me I'm gonna go with a hidden gem of Clint Howard Rico the morgue director
2: oh yeah yeah
1: yeah he is just such a unique person he gets work pretty much because his brothers Ron Howard but um, austin powers night shift the water boy apollo 13 that thing you do rock and roll high school he's just a weird looking dude <laughs> and uh yes every time i do see him i do see him in that first scene of austin powers in particular <laughs> like uh he's back the big boy well sir in many ways the big boy's never left <laughs> he's been here offering <laughs> quality food at an affordable price to families for not the big boy you idiot
2: <laughs> that is a great scene though he's when he's trying to convince Billy to lift him up, lift yes. up the corpse. Jesus Christ! He's not going to sell you insurance <laughs> lift him up. Yes, he's he's
1: uh, he's so desensitized by the corpses that uh, he's he's got this almost crazy personality where he's disconnected. That everybody else would be uneasy with this. So I just I, I don't. I just
2: know. like that line. He's not going to sell you insurance. Sorry to all of our insurance salesman listeners. I guess so. Uh, Ned
0: <laughs>
1: uh, Groundhog Day reference on that. Um, so uh, Brian, what about you, man? Hidden gem
0: I think my hidden gem on this one's gonna be the fact that David Crosby's actually in it as a 70s hippie. <laughs>
2: yeah, oh, yeah. Good, good
0: call on that. Just you know look even if you're not a fan of uh, Crosby Stills Nash and Young or, or even his solo stuff, uh, the fact that he was just kind of a token dude in the in the mix was kind of fun. That is cool.
1: I also believe if you were to cast a real-life version of the Lorax, he needs to play the Lorax.
0: That's solid. That's
2: solid. Did any of their songs make it into this? Because we did Tremors and they shoehorned uh, Reba McIntyre. Was there a Crosby, Stills, Nash? Mm, yeah.
1: Not that I recall.
2: Yeah, I didn't either. They, that's a mess.
1: Time to recast. Who are you going to recast? Brian.
0: All right. I had to do it just because it's been the point I've probably belabored the most. Uh, I want to see Alec Baldwin do William Baldwin's part. (laughs) They would be closer in age. I got to tell you this too. I I can tell you a hundred percent that I had written that down before I knew Alec Baldwin was up for the part and passed on it. Like when you guys brought that up earlier, I was just like, Oh crap. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Chad, who are you
1: going to recast?
2: Yeah, it, it's really tempting to say Billy Baldwin because we know all these other people that turned down the role. But I think I have to go after Jennifer Jason Lee. Yes. Uh, I kind of want more personality from Jen's character. So I think I'm going to go with Courtney Cox. Uh, oh. She, she yeah. does Gale and Scream. I kind of want that uh, almost meanness to the personality that she brings about in Gale.
1: Climbing the corporate ladder like, or trying to get ahead in the system, I could see her doing that. Or
0: maybe a, a, an Alyssa Milano. Yeah that would be a good choice. These too. are both
1: good. I, I, I Wow, I, I might like these better than mine now because uh, I, I also don't like Jennifer Jason Lee. There's something subdued about her performance yes. and lifeless. And yes, in a movie with William Baldwin, he's not a, even for a minute who I want to recast in this. I want to go after Jennifer Jason Lee as well. And I have Nancy Allen okay. uh, planned to go in there. But I do like your all's choices. I just this is an actress from the era who I'm fond of. And I I think she should have gotten more work and she's a good actress and I would have liked to have seen her
0: get in there. So can I throw a twist in here? If uh, you had mentioned earlier, liking to see what Keanu Reeves did with that part. What if they also had cast Lori Petty as Jenny, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character. So then you'd have a rehash of the point break romance.
1: I also like that. So, but but, yeah, I, I do like that. I like Lori Petty there as well. Actually. See, that feistiness that Lori Petty would bring yeah. to this would be would be good, which is similar to what Chad was saying with Courtney Cox. So. And if you're wondering, uh, backtracking just a second, if you're wondering who Nancy Allen is, you would definitely know her from the RoboCop movies. Yeah.
0: That's, going forward,
1: though, best shot, Ryan.
0: Uh, my best shot is going to be that that Kurt Russell carrying the boy out of the burning building as the explosions happening behind him. That's kind of an iconic scene of our picture for this movie it was the front of most dvds for it i feel like that really sums up what they're going for is the heroicism of firefighters because you know you're clearly going to be sprinting with a boy in one arm and an axe in the other hand excellent choice there chad
2: best shot so during the scene when brian really i think for the first time gets to see his brother as a hero him and steven enter a building and they're pretty much alone There's this gorgeous shot looking up a staircase. Everything's on fire, and you see the flame sucked in and the door slamming shut, and it's just this eerie, powerful, like, we're in over our heads scene for me, or shot.
1: That is a great one. I have a similar one, Uh, when behind Brian, as he looks in on the fire in the warehouse room, where his brother is hurt, this is where the fire moves across the ceiling. And it comes at him, and the room's just ablaze. And you see this how small you feel in this giant warehouse just going up in fire. That powerful moment to me is the shot, but I like yours as well. Yeah. Very forceful. Uh, best scene, Brian.
0: I think my favorite scene is really watching De Niro pick apart a fire crime. I really enjoyed his... Like, you have to think, like, the fire, the whole piece where he goes through his thought process and his, you know, trying to figure out how it went. Like, this is where it started. This is where it spread. It did this thing. I think that was, like, a really eerie thing, especially when you see the kind of dumbfounded look on Baldwin's face when he's like, oh, crap, this guy's, like, you know, when he's talking about you got to love it a little bit. Like, that yeah. That was just, that was, that was a spooky scene. And I really enjoyed it.
1: I love that pick. Yeah, very good. Chad?
2: For me, it's the final scene with Axe. Everything's crumbling around them. Scott Glenn's face is just, it's really impressive because he doesn't get to say much, but what he conveys with his face, his emotions, it's just this conflict, and there's fire blazing all around him. It's just awesome. I mentioned earlier, it kind of made me laugh because I'm like, eh, this reminds me of episode three of Mustafar with everything popping up and blowing up around them but it was still just this powerful scene yeah i have the high
0: ground
1: <laughs> for me the best scene in this is the elevator shaft sequence where Stephen baldwin is trapped and uh you know the water's filling up and there's fire all over the place I, this climax of the movie of his last last fire scene to me and uh, his brother then dives across the elevator shaft to turn off the gas which I'm pretty sure the arrangement of the utilities doesn't work at all like this but it's dramatic and it sure is cool for the movie so that was a great moment for me and that scene where one brother is taking an enormous gamble to save his other brother that's the movie summed up in a a nutshell like you know these guys are dysfunctional to the core but they still protect each other and I like that. Change one thing, Brian.
0: I think I would have liked to have seen more Donald Sutherland. Like, maybe instead of doing an intro with the dad dying, who's also Kurt Russell, maybe have more De Niro's part in stopping Donald Sutherland as the intro and then segued into... I'm not sure how to stylistically do this, but then segue into kind of firefighters doing their thing and then center back on the family that you're gonna be watching through the whole thing. But I, I felt like a little bit more intro to Donald Sutherland and and really showing him out and being a fire starter. Maybe even toss in some uh, some some music on that one have a little fire starter playing in the background. Ah uh, you,
1: you you thought you you beat it, you beat me to it. I, I was gonna say, I'm uh, thinking prodigy. I am the fire
2: starter I'm definitely up for more Donald Sutherland.
1: Is that yours as well, then?
2: No, uh, to the same extent, I guess you could work in Donald Sutherland into it, but it, Russell, I think it was you that touched on this earlier. I would have liked to have had more of this arson mystery investigation side, which brings in more of Robert De Niro maybe more conversations with Donald Sutherland. But I really enjoyed that aspect of, oh, well, this isn't just a disaster, but there's a little bit of a mystery, and then it was just all resolved way too quickly for me.
1: Nailed it. I mean, the bottom line of that is you have Robert De Niro. Use him. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that I didn't pick him for any of my superlatives, or really I couldn't even try and pick him for my superlatives, that's a
0: problem. No, okay, I, I really want to speak to this because I agree with you. I mean, there definitely needed to be more of him in this. They went with that family aspect to it. Like, I, I don't mean like a family movie. I mean, the the McCaffrey family. I, I think that what the gem, like not hidden gem because it wasn't hidden. The gem of this movie is that you have De Niro playing such a compelling part. Like even the scene where Baldwin's waiting in his outer office and he sees him changing his shirt and he's all scarred from fire. Like he did the other job. He did the Kurt Russell job. He was that guy. And now he's doing this other thing because his talents make that possible. And, and, and that's where he should be. So really, I think if there's any fault in this movie – it's that they underutilized one of the best assets they had. Absolutely.
1: And I'm with Chad. Just weave threads of the investigation in way earlier in the movie and so that it feels like it's more integral to the plot. More De Niro, more mystery. And sure, you could probably get more Sutherland out of that too. So all of that.
0: Best quote, Brian. Uh, I'm going to go with the Donald Sutherland quote, quote here. It's him and De Niro talking. What about the world, Ronald. What would you like to do to the whole world? (laughs) Burn it. Burn it all. (laughs) So creepy. It was so creepy and I loved it. Like Donald Sutherland, again, like you want to talk about two of the best actors in this movie. We're in that scene. Like Donald Sutherland's just kind of giggling, talking about burning everything like that was. You could have told me that if I knew nothing about Donald Sutherland and you told me. This is an actual pyromaniac that they brought in. They, they went to a place <laughs> and said, this is a guy who actually sets things and people on fire. I would have believed you in a heartbeat. I would have been like, oh, wow, that's scary as hell.
2: Yeah. What'd you do to the little girl? Burned her. her, it's, her. it's just, it's just the inflection on it that is chilling because,
0: wild, yeah. just wild, wild Robert, eyes. Robert De Niro knows it's that knowing yeah. but, but he does that knowing grin so well because you can tell in his head he's imagining it
2: he kind of looks like Nigel Thornberry in it just a <laughs> <laughs> that's good That's a very very, very fair comparison uh, Chad best quote uh, so Fry definitely took mine and that's fine because it deserves all the recognition that scene is just it's great and we need more. So I think I'm going to go the opposite direction and do the worst quote uh, because I have nothing else. So in dialogue uh, with Jen, this was just stuck out to me. Brian and Jen are talking and Jen says, that's a dumb thing to say. And Brian goes, you're right. And the scene ends. (laughs) (laughs) Well, people talk that way. Their lead writer was out that day. So uh, yeah, we're going to let the intern write this scene. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay can, can, can I good point <laughs> can I go with a worst quote here like or I, I'm not saying it's sure, worse worse that but my worst quote for the movie I hated Kurt Russell going look at him that's my brother god damn it it's just like I get it you're trying to prove that you're proud that your brother is doing what you do but man was there ever just hitting the nail like just it's it you got it it's in there you, you don't need any you're beating yep. the hell out of it
1: so my best quote is going to go to Lieutenant Stephen McCaffrey going you go we go <laughs> just like it yeah that's that's the tone of the movie that shows you that everybody
2: here is a team it was repeated twice for emphasis
1: yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, so it's we've come to that time of the show five star rating Brian what do you give backdraft
0: I'm going to give this a three I'm not sure if we have done a movie that pulls me in two different directions more than this where i'm like oh i love that oh i hate that so it it is it, it is a a three with love if that makes
2: sense yeah chad yeah i'm in the same boat there are things that i love i love the fire i love the danger and the action scene i really enjoyed donald sutherland and i just wanted more of the arson and the mystery and the investigation with de niro i i didn't Enjoy the family conflict as much, and a lot of the things that we've talked about, shoehorned in here with the random romances, uh, and the family conflict with uh, Stephen's family. Just all that seemed extraneous, so yeah, three stars. So uh,
1: for me, I'm going to go three stars as well. Uh, We've got The Mystery Needs to Start Sooner, as we mentioned. I'm with Chad. There's parts of the family drama that just aren't doing it for me as much as the mystery and the political corruption that are going on that, to me, are just far more interesting. There's got to be a personal side of it and a human dimension. But I feel like Ron Howard, great director, by the way, could have sifted through things and given more focus to this, especially, like Brian said, use your assets better. So all of these things seem more condemning than what I'm saying because... I do love the action scenes. I do love the fire. It is inspiring. It is a tip of the hat to the real heroes and the out there. So I'm with Fry. It's a good three if there is such a thing. Yeah. It's 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 problematic, but it's also got a lot of redeeming qualities. So there's a better movie in here somewhere. Though.
0: Well, like um, the, the whole time we've talked about this, we've never really mentioned J.T. Walsh, who is the politician who's basically strangling the department. Like, what does that say? Like, when you have an entire movie based on one guy trying to stick it to this other guy and outside of a couple little points to say, yeah, it was a firefighter doing all these things, we never actually talked about Swayzak and what he was doing. So I I think that really feeds into all of our reviews on this, because when you can talk about a movie as much as we just did and not mention the scummy guy that's honestly the scummy guy in all the movies like we 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 literally never got around to it because how important was that piece
1: absolutely good points but it's come time to pick a movie for next time and you know what do you guys want to do me the honor on this one
2: sure sure yeah so brian we're gonna pick three movies and we've got a fun theme uh for these movies and it is games within movies are you ready for the choices let's do this right, first up, we have 1985's Clue. Six guests are anonymously invited to a strange mansion for dinner, but after their host is killed, they must cooperate with the staff to
0: identify the murderer as the bodies pile up. I I feel like it always has to be mustard. Like, if it's not always mustard, (laughs) I'm disappointed. Everybody has their favorite.
2: Next up is 1982's Tron. A computer hacker is abducted into the digital world and forced to participate in gladiatorial games where his only chance of escape is with the help of a heroic security program.
0: And some of the best Depeche Mode ever. Note,
2: this is the 1982 one, not the uh, 2010, I think. it was Tron Legacy?
0: Yeah. You know, yes. it was bad, but I, I heart. So,
2: yeah, I dug it. And finally, we've got 1995's Jumanji. When two kids find and play a magical board game, they release a man trapped for decades in it and a host of dangers that can only be stopped by finishing the game. Once again, I have to make a clarification. This does not have Kevin Hart or The Rock in it. This has Robin Williams.
0: Oh, uh, I'm going to go with... Yeah, this is tough. I'm a huge Tron fan. I got to tell you ahead of time, I'm a giant Tron fan. But I think I'm going to go with option A.
2: All right. We've been begging for more mystery throughout this podcast. So mystery is what we're going to get. Clue in 1985. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Chad. And thank you, all the
1: lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Thank you for—we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those iTunes ratings help other people find the show. It's the number one thing you can do to help us. So please, 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 if you haven't already, give a show a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Give us a like on Facebook. We want to hear from you. If you like the movies that we're doing, let us know in the comments section. Email us at retromovieroundtable@yahoo.com. at yahoo.com if uh, you want to be on the show, if you want to go into, into a deeper discussion. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian?
0: Rebellions were built on hope.